Sports Analytics Podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, finding the logic behind poor strategy, we're taking a look at some early season pit calls, where they went wrong, and also where they could have gone right, and the big Atlanta preview, including telling you whether Kevin Harvick is off or not. But first, as always, this is episode 94 of Positive Regression. This is the Thunderbat edition. Yes, David, we have been waiting 26 years and 93 episodes to say this is not, <laughs> not the Bill Elliott edition. This specifically is the Thunderbat edition of Positive Regression. The Thunderbat, David, of course, for those that don't know, a special paint scheme back in 1995. Bill Elliott drove the number 94 McDonald's car, but for three wonderful races, it was a black Batman-themed Ford Thunderbird. It was the Thunderbat. Uh, this is the high point of this segment by far. Alan, this paint scheme, the Thunderbat, is the single best temporary one-off paint scheme in NASCAR history. And my irrationality for this subject does not concern itself with any other opinion. Uh, and let me explain why. This was the combination of NASCAR and Batman. And for someone <laughs> yes. growing up in the 1990s in America, yes, I saw this car and yes, this makes sense. Literally everything I like is in one place. Worlds are colliding. It was like when you have one set of friends meet a different set of friends who've never previously crossed paths and they all get along and then you realize, oh, we should have just been all hanging out together this whole time. The, all of that manifested in this race car. And this was... I, I know you want to talk about this. This was a very big diecast purchase Ooh. for me, but please, please let me hear it from the diecast master. Where does this stack up in the pantheon of Alan Kavana's diecast collection? Oh, one of the best, only because it had its own special packaging as well. It wasn't the regular racing champions red background. Not only was the car cool and special, but it had its own special packaging that, that, that mirrored the car, right? The car was black and had this cool Batman logo that was blue and dark green. And I got to give it up to McDonald's. So many times we see sponsors, I think, interfere with what could be a cool paint scheme because they want to get their message out, right? You still want the sponsorship. Like, I, I mean, I'm just so glad they didn't make the Thunderbat red and yellow, right? <laughs> like, because McDonald's, that, that would have ruined it. But McDonald's, they let it breathe, baby. They let the red and yellow and white car go to black for the Thunderbat and had a cool, unique logo. And in terms of the die cast, I mean, it was so beautiful and detailed and it had its own cool packaging, which made it even cooler. And just, I just remember looking at it, David, just the little details on it. It had the Batman logo on the bottom of the, like, say, the left and right side, like, where you would jack up the car. Like, you know, it was like a half Batman logo almost emerging. Like, just just cool details and just fun to look at. And you hit it so on the money, David, in terms of the cross-section. I would have been 12 years old, right, I mean, of Batman and NASCAR racing. Are you kidding me? So awesome. Okay, so you you clearly had the racing champions version of this? Yes, yes. Okay, okay. There was an action version where the interior was gray, blah. Oh. Uh, there was a Hot Wheels version where the interior was red that was actually sort of true to life because Bill Elliott's uh, car interiors during that time were red. Hmm. But the racing champions... Come on, tell me, tell me what color they went with for the bright, interior. Gr bright green. Yes, fluorescent <laughs> green. Oh my gosh, they went the extra mile with that. It's funny that you mentioned how McDonald's didn't interfere with this because they absolutely interfered with the script for this movie, Batman what? Forever. Oh yes, if you'll indulge me, uh, Batman Returns, which starred Danny DeVito as the Penguin. It was directed by Tim Burton. It was a very dark movie. McDonald's had a Happy Meal uh, based around it, all of the, the little fry cartons were black with the Batman logo, and it was a big deal. But that movie was a borderline R-rated movie with the plot in 
it took a while to get to this plot. It was not a coherent script, but the, the, the kind of the main theme was that the penguin was going to capture, mutilate, and murder firstborn children. So McDonald's stepped in and said, well, all right, we'll, we'll do another Batman. We kind of hated that. Uh, we need to have some, some kind of a script supervision. And they did. And that began a long line of McDonald's looking at scripts. They did it with Jurassic Park as well and some other movies that they have uh, thrown uh, branding assistance on. They did that. So uh, for this here, I, I'm I'm with you. I'm glad that this was a black car. And really, Alan, I, I got to tell you, this may have been the best single thing about Bill Elliott owning his own team was the paint schemes. Um, in addition to this one, there was a, a, like an indigo and yellow Mac tonight car. There was the monopoly paint schemes. Uh, in 1998, Matt Kenseth subbed for Bill Elliott at Dover. He finished sixth. That was his first ever cup start, but the paint scheme was this trippy flower power, big Mac paint scheme. So that was memorable. If I may, 1995 to 2000, Bill Elliott started this team in his age 39 season. Hmm. For his career, this team, for him at least, was a huge mistake. Before he owned the team, <laughs> he, he was, he was a winner. And after he closed this team, he joined Everham Motorsports and he won more races. His statistical prime, ages 39 to 44, were spent Driving for himself, and I like to think that he uh, sacrificed his statistical prime in order to deliver some of the most memorable paint schemes of my childhood. So uh, hats off to you, uh, Bill Elliott. I'll be honest, literally any driver could have been in this car, and I would have attacked this diecast car with uh, the same relentless fervor. I think I purchased it – no, I did purchase it at a flea market – and remember paying something like $12. Um, wow. Rubber, yeah. It wasn't the normal $3 car. And I knew uh, I, I was a big spender. I had $20 in my wallet. And I, I asked what the price was, $12. Uh, the, the clerk uh, told me. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, you fool. I would have gone as high as 20 Okay, here you go. <laughs> so took home – the uh the thunderbat and i still have that in my collection rubber wheels uh fluorescent green interior so so good so memorable my favorite paint scheme of all time awesome awesome excellent recollection we've been waiting a long time for this david even better news is that if you want to go see the thunderbat it is in mooresville north carolina last i checked it is at the north carolina motorsports hall of fame in mooresville north carolina it is an awesome place. It has some really unique cars, and the Thunderbat is in there. I called them this week to verify. Unfortunately, they're only open probably due to COVID stuff, you know, bad hours. They're open Thursdays and Fridays, so I did not get an answer. But I, I like to believe it is still there. It was there as of a few years ago. So go see the Thunderbat and that great museum because it's a good time. If not for the pandemic, we would have been recording this live at that museum in front of that car. That's I how passionate. Thought. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was like, we really <laughs> take this on the road, but I was like, if we could have done this in front of the Thunderbat, that would have been something very, very much of this podcast is ilk. <laughs> there are opportunities down the road. I feel there are better days ahead and, uh, maybe we'll make that happen. That might be a, a special, uh, a very special episode in front of the Thunderbat. Can't wait. Episode 94 of Positive Regression, the Thunderbat edition. All right, let's start talking about uh, this season anyway, the 2021 season. David, it's been a few races. We are five races in, and it has given us enough time to go back and look at some of the early pit calls early on in 2021 and trying to find the logic behind what became poor strategy. And, you know, it's always easier in 2020 hindsight. But I think as we'll discuss is like some of these decisions, right, David, are made with, with uh, you know, a dice roll in mind. Or if some if something breaks a certain way, it, it would certainly come out for the best. But we're going to dissect some of these. So uh, first and foremost is why these pit calls are so important, right? Points are now awarded at the ends of stages. Race wins provide automatic playoff berths. How do you think that's affected some of the, the calls or, or winners that we've seen early on this season? The 2019 season 
Alan, if it wasn't the pinnacle of stage pointing your way into the NASCAR playoffs, it's just what sticks out to me the most. Uh, the playoffs that year consisted of four drivers who did not win a single race, but pointed their way in traditionally. And uh, two more drivers, Daniel Suarez and Jimmy Johnson, were rather close to doing that as well. Suarez especially, and he missed the playoffs by four points. Scott Graves, uh, crew chief for Ryan Newman, opted to stay out on six of eight opportunities where he he could have either collected stage points or not, and he chose to do so. And that was a big call. Those efforts yielded 41 extra positions on the track and earned them 11 points going uh, toward their year-long total. Suarez uh, missed the playoffs by four spots, only scored four points from stages that year. So when we see Michael McDowell win his way in via the Daytona 500, it's one less available spot. Chris Bell and William Byron winning, maybe they aren't surprises uh, that they are in the playoffs. I had both in my preseason 16, but winning this early, that's a little bit shocking. And it means that the fringe teams, the teams just outside the the cusp of the playoffs. I'm thinking of SHR outside of Kevin Harvick. I'm thinking of Roush Fenway. I'm thinking of Wood Brothers Racing with Matt DiBenedetto, maybe Ganassi, uh, organizations like RCR, JTG, 2311, RPM, and maybe even Trackhouse. It means that the diligent point accumulation is less sturdy of a design, and it puts the onus on, I think, winning races. And winning for some of these teams is atypical, and it would require extreme measures. And having this many winners this early has a huge impact on these teams. Of course, you know, Denny Hamlin and Martin Truex have been asked about this, and they brushed it off saying, oh, well, the season's so long, and we've got plenty of time. Yes, those guys have plenty of time. They've, they've got 26 realistic opportunities to win races in the regular season. These other guys don't. And at this rate, it wouldn't shock me to see maybe not 16 different winners or more than 16, but I think a lot of different winners by the end of the regular season. Um, but also maybe only a few drivers with a lot of playoff points. James Small, crew chief for Martin Truex, mentioned this after the Phoenix win. He said their focus, he called them bonus points, but he said the focus was getting those points. He called it out as something that they needed to correct during this regular season for this year's playoffs. And I think that kind of thinking, that philosophy is going to drive a lot of pit decisions that we're going to see going forward. All right, so if pit decisions are on the minds uh, of a lot of teams because of that, uh, sometimes, as I said, it, it can be seen as gambling. You, you, you make a decision and you need some things to fall your way, and if it does, you look like a genius, right? So where are the, the examples of, of the kinds of good gambles versus the kinds of bad gambles, if you will? Do you, how do you separate those two? It is very close between good and bad. And uh, over a year ago, I sat down – with Randy Cox, who was then the crew chief for Corey LaJoy. And I asked him about, you know, being in the crew chief role as a strategist with a, a with a gamble on your mind. And he was a pragmatist. He may be the most pragmatic crew chief in recent NASCAR history. He told me that I think a lot of these guys are very good at what we're talking about here, but in fact, they don't have to be. Their cars are so fast that they can gamble or just be willy-nilly about what they're doing because they're going to be so fast, they'll get the lucky dog, or they can unlap themselves another way. They never have to think about it. I'm not going to do something super risky. We'll do something that mathematically makes sense to somebody else, maybe a little risky, but the risk is, okay, we're we're going to run here to a specific lap, and at that point, we're going to start saving fuel so we can make it here to the next lap. That looks risky from the outside. Well... I know what my fuel mileage is. If I do the math right, I know I get here without getting lapped again or having to stop. And then I asked him if he was ever 
supplied more speed because he was a crew chief at Go Fast Racing and their battle was pretty long. He said that more speed would give us some freedoms. Maybe you do take two tires and gamble on track position. As much as some guys might pound their chest and say, I knew that was going to work. No, you gambled. You gambled when you took those two tires because nobody had done it yet in this race. And maybe it worked, but there are two other guys in this race who that didn't work for. Having cars that fast enables you to take a few chances in the race if you do them early enough that it doesn't bury you. So it is... Alan, a situation where we have to consider everything. The magnitude of the gamble is dependent on the speed that you have and the driver that you have. And now with the changes to how we're crowning champions, where you are in the playoff format of it all, a middling to slow team taking a big risk is an understood good gamble. And those kinds of gambles, that's pitting super long on a track with limited tire wear so as to bet on a caution. It's pitting short in the window on a track with heavy tire wear. You're risking going a lap down, but if you're within sniffing distance of a car or two or three in front of you, that can land you some spots. Staying out under yellow, especially near the end of a stage We've talked about it. It's a gamble where the odds are in your favor, pretty much regardless of the track. You have to execute the restart and still expect to lose some spots. But for the most part, the goal, unless it's late in the race, the goal is to net out a positive gain. And by and large, those are the keystone good gambles, we can call it that. Uh, now the bad, not surprisingly, it's just the inverse of everything I, I just said. <laughs> Uh, teams with speed can, can take good gambles and bad gambles because they have the speed acting as this safety net. But for the most part, it's still bad to long pit on a track with a lot of tire wear. It's, uh, not at all advantageous to short pit on tracks with little tire wear. And relinquishing the lead under yellow, uh, in a stage or, uh, at the end of a race, that's not a catch-22. There's a clear best choice, and it's not to give up the lead. I've yeah. done that study. I have the receipts, and we're going to get into a few of these here where I will remind folks that the driver still very much needs to do his part. Uh, the call, good or bad, does not magically deliver a result. So there is nuance with every call. There's a reason that I don't live tweet. I don't like to be so reactive as to not consider all the possible options with some strategy calls that we see when watching the races on TV. Um, but mostly, Alan, when we talk about good gambles and bad gambles, those those are the basics. All right. Well, then let's take those basics and get even more specific because we have seen some calls that we want to analyze in the first five races of the season. Let's take it back to Homestead, David. Kyle Larson and Daniel Suarez long pitting on the first green flag pit cycle. Again, let's set this up with everything you just taught us, right? Homestead, high tire wear racetrack, long pitting on the first green flag pit cycle. And frankly, these are teams in different scenarios, right? I mean, Kyle Larson, Hendrick, Speed, Daniel Suarez, uh, you know, new team, still looking for, for something, right? Uh, analyze how two different teams make the same call and why one may be good or bad, or I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think you're heading in the right direction with, with Kyle Larson. I believe what Cliff Daniels was doing was testing the waters on a call. That car they brought to Homestead was effectively a short-run car, and the call to Long Pit would give Larson fresher tires by the end of that stage, uh, fresher than his competition had, and Larson on fresh tires, you know, that's that's a pretty good shot. I understand that logic. It was not a good call, nor was it a, a particularly good risk. But the silver lining, given what Professor Randy Cox taught us, Daniels didn't bury himself. And that is really important to remember. The risk was taken for the end of a stage, not the win. So there was still time for Kyle Larson to recover during that long final stage. But Larson lost seven spots. It moved him from third to 10th in that second stage. Uh, he passed his way back up to fifth, uh, for the end of the stage. So he collected a little, uh, a little bit of uh, stage points. This is around the time that William Byron was checking out. Maybe the stage win 
wasn't at stake, but Larson could have been more firmly in the hunt had he short pitted that cycle. Uh, for Suarez, much different. Same cycle, different answer. But we get it. He was looking for the caution flag. And because Homestead was just eating tires, I mean, that was some pretty serious degradation that we saw. The thought was that if he hit on a yellow, everyone would come in at the same time. He would have that track position regardless of the stop. And in the ensuing restart, it would be better than what he had. Doing that early, you're hoping it comes to that. Uh, you know, Travis Mack, the crew chief was looking for stage points, track position, anything, but it was clearly a gamble that uh, did not have a great chance at hitting. It cost Suarez five spots, moving him from 19th to 24th. And you got to think, 19th to 24th, you add all those little points up at the end of a season, you know, who knows what that adds to when it comes to in or out of the playoffs, you know what I mean? So I, I see what you're hitting on there. Uh, next one. Pit call number two, the front row cars, Harvick and Cole Custer, long pit at Las Vegas. Las Vegas, not super high tire wear. So, the and again, a, a difference in the, the teams right there, right? The front row cars, Kevin Harvick, obviously SHR and all his speed, and Cole Custer, his teammate, uh, probably somewhere in the middle of all that. So three different kind of teams, if you will, with the same strategy. How do you analyze that? Yeah, so the tire wear in Las Vegas wasn't as pronounced as Homestead. I think it topped out at like 1.3 seconds worth of degradation. So it makes the long pit a safer tactic. Uh, the risk of getting passed by the leader before you yourself pit is significantly smaller. But front row motorsports with crew chief Seth Barber and uh, rookie driver Anthony Alfredo they didn't seem to recognize that part. Uh, this was a gamble that we kind of understand, but it was made worse with poor execution. They were passed by, I believe, Kyle Larson. And when that happens, you eventually pit, uh, you, you go a lap down. And that's what happened. Kyle Larson had already pitted. He was going to be the leader um, once the cycle rounded out. And he got by Alfredo. That is how Anthony Alfredo Finished off the lead lap, actually. That was the only lap he lost in that race, and that was 100% a self-inflicted wound. Um, as for Kevin Harvick and Cole Custer, two reputable strategists, I'd say, and Rodney Childers and Mike Shiplett going long, a bit uncharacteristic, and this was the final uh, pit cycle of the day. Harvick's speed was was just getting progressively worse as the race went on. He had his own problems. Cole Custer, same thing, just a similarly crummy day. And this was the kind of gamble that you make when you got nothing else. And mind you, Kurt Busch won a Las Vegas race with a similar call last year. It's not it's not a bad gamble given their day is a whole. It's just one final thing because it was, it was already going south, but, uh, Harvick did end up losing three spots. He went from 19th to 22nd. He only made up two of them, uh, after that finishing 20th. Custer, meanwhile, testament to him, his pit crew and the fact that their position was sort of settled, started 26th, uh, started the cycle 26th, finished the cycle 26th. So uh big risk, but essentially no harm, no foul. Interesting, especially at a track like Las Vegas where you expect the, those SHR cars to do a lot better than they did. Maybe it, mid-race uh, altering of a potential strategy. So uh interesting stuff there. Let's show pick call number three. This was last week, David, in Phoenix, something that was talked about a lot because of really who it was. I mean, Bubba Wallace, 2311 racing. Bubba Wallace stays out on seven-lap old tires at Phoenix. Uh, it stays out and makes him the leader and immediately, you know, gets you a lot of questions like, you know, what's he doing? Is he going to get eaten up? Uh, is he going to stick around enough for a net positive? Get some stage points, what have you. Uh, let's analyze it because uh, there was a few different factors here that I think played into where he ultimately came out. Yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts were because you were watching this race. When, when you see that they are making this call, what do you think? Just just off the top of your head, was it good? Was it bad? What were your feelings? Immediately, I thought it was good because there are seven laps, right? This is a team that, that needs, you know, dare I say a shot in the arm to be cliche, but, you know, need to put themselves in position to get some points, right? They are right in that 
that bubble where they are competing maybe to point their way in on the back end of the playoffs. So I thought this was a good call. Mike Wheeler, good crew chief, makes good calls. And then something Clint Boyer immediately pointed out is that Bubba had the choice on the restart. And all day, the restart, the best choice had been on the inside as the leader. But that is also when I would assume you have full advantage as the leader in terms of new tires. So uh, Clint Boyer immediately pointed out Bubba should probably take the outside here because uh, what ended up costing him, I guess, is that he spun his tires, uh, took a bad line or groove into that first turn, and, and it didn't play out like they probably wanted it to. And it just made me wonder if he had chose the outside as the leader with the disadvantaged tires but still kind of played the middle, if you will, if it would have played out better for him in terms of some points. I like everything you just said. That's pretty good. You know, I, um, I, I was interested in that. And then Mike Wheeler took to Twitter. His mentions must have just absolutely blown up because he felt compelled to explain himself on Twitter. Uh, it, it was all good. It, it all makes sense. Uh, staying out is usually a net positive, but as we said, it is contingent on the driver doing his part. So. Let's break down the restart here. I, I think you did a, a very good job of setting that up. He set it up statistically well. The inside groove was the front row's preferred spot. He picked it. And what Boyer said about taking advantage of the traction compound, also not the worst idea. He went with the, the spot with the highest success rate and – I got to tell you, picking something because it has a high rate of success does not mean that it's automatic, right? We hear about uh, high percentage three-point shots in the NBA, but (laughs) the players are shooting it blindfolded, right? So, (laughs) you know, yeah, Bubba Bubba spun the tires. Uh, That that was one, nearly made contact with Logano to the outside of him, uh, which means he's up too high if he's restarting on the bottom and the three drivers behind him, which happened to be Brad Keselowski, Kyle Larson, and William Byron, all drivers who can restart very, very well, all of whom committed to running the apron through the first corner. Bubba somehow found himself three wide middle on a track with two demonstrative grooves. And I honestly don't know if that was entirely due to tires. That said... Mike Wheeler felt the need to explain this decision and kudos to him for recognizing other cars trying this early in the race. That's what he said. Uh, and, and they had success. I chided Alan Gustafson for his Coca-Cola 600 pit stop last year. Uh, even though Alex Bowman and Joey Logano found success by not taking four tires in that race. So I'm not going to uh, throw shade at Wheeler here for trying to read the race. Um, but also, this was pointed out, Bubba Wallace was picking off positions at the time of this call. But I challenge the longevity of him doing that. His car, unofficially, ranked 15th in median lap time for this race, which is fine, but ultimately not competitive enough for the win. And there was very likely a low ceiling on who and how far he could pass his way through the field. Getting around, you know, Matt Benedetto, Eric Almarola, Cole Custer, take your pick. That's one thing. Getting around Logano and Truex and Keselowski, that's another. And I think that that also played a factor in this call because clean air is the most coveted thing in racing outside of the trophy for a reason. It is a great equalizer. And we saw what clean air was doing for leaders in this race. Logano hit clean air first and got out to a lead, maybe what, four and a half seconds before hitting heavy lapped traffic. And that's huge. That's what they're trying to do here. I imagine Wheeler recognized this as the best opportunity to give that advantage to his driver. So, It was polarizing, especially if you're a Bubba Wallace fan, and it will go down as a bad call because they lost positions. But I don't think 2311 Racing gets to the playoffs this year by picking off one or two stage points at a time. As we discussed, the more crowded uh, the winner's list gets, the bigger the advantage is for those who regularly compete for wins. And... 
Wallace and Wheeler, given that we know this team was not working on cars until last December, they have no notes to call their own, at least not just yet. They need to shoot for points in bulk. And the best way to do that is outright wins to net yourself that playoff berth. So do you think we see more gambles because of the situation that has presented itself with five different winners already and that that bubble, if you will, or the back end of the playoffs uh, closing a bit? Do you think we see more gambles and from from who? Like a, t- a team like 2311? Who else? Yes. Yes. From the from the middle speed teams. Absolutely. I don't think fans realize how lucrative it is for teams to make the playoffs. They receive more financial support from OEMs. I mean, winning the Daytona 500 was was huge for Michael McDowell's career, but for Front Row as an organization, Ford's eventually going to chip in more money for a playoff run. That's pretty big, and and they'll probably get more money next year. Uh, it's a big deal, as it should be. Individuals get bonuses. And if you recognize that the traditional method for earning a playoff spot is essentially gone, uh, that, I mean, consistency for a team with Bubba's brand of speed, that matters less than it did, certainly in 2019, uh, you know, the way Ryan Newman did it. And in order to win, all of these teams are going to have to get really weird with, with some of this strategy. Like even, you know, we saw, we saw Corey LaJoy running way long. Uh, the last few races, we, we kind of, we get it, like, right? I mean, where, where was he topping out on speed? Maybe was, was he cracking the top 30? I don't know, but all of these teams are going to have to gamble if they want a shot at the playoffs. And there will be good gambles and there will be bad gambles and probably some atrocious ones that we're just going to have to call out. But <laughs> if your measure of success for an entire season is playoffs or bust, then there might not be such a thing as a bad gamble in your mind. And that's potentially the way that some of these crew chiefs are going to call races for the rest of the regular season. Perfect. Perfect way to end that conversation. All right, let's move on to our Atlanta race preview, because as we know, Atlanta tire fall off is big. How does that impact strategy? Because we just talked all about pit strategy. We're heading to Atlanta, huge tire fall off. Uh, you know, there's a part of me, David, that just wonders, you know, you got to get tires every time, right? So, uh, is there any strategy, right? So how, how does the, the tire fall off affect Atlanta pit strategy? Oh, it'll be tires every time. Yeah. It's <laughs> one, 1.4 seconds of tire degradation. Easy. We saw a few drivers in traffic before the stop, uh, in last year's race emerge into clean air and that difference bordered on two seconds. So yes, tire wear matters. It will be managed differently for each driver. But I think the crew chiefs who short pit or pit early-ish within the window are giving themselves the biggest mathematical break here. Um, I'll say that Phoenix wasn't a track for long pitting per se, but for the most part, there wasn't much wasted time when coming down the pit road uh under green waste might not be the right word maybe a hesitation there wasn't much hesitation you know i mentioned lajoy but uh crew chief ryan sparks attempting to run out the stage that's an understood gamble um just based on what their speed was but for the most part i thought phoenix was a fairly disciplined pit cycle and i'm sure we'll see long pitting this weekend but it's either from teams whose entire offensive game plan is to make this exact gamble or in the case of Stuart Haas at Vegas it's an act of utter desperation interesting speaking of Stuart Haas David um this was interesting to me the fastest car you say has not won at Atlanta in the 550 horsepower era uh, if you are a listener of this podcast, or a reader of Motorsports Analytics, you know the fastest car only wins about 40% of the time. So that that wasn't odd to me to hear that the fastest car didn't win. But the fact that Kevin Harvick has been the winner, David, of some of these races in Atlanta and that he hasn't had the fastest car apparently, that was very interesting to me. So what do we make of this? The fastest car has not won at Atlanta <laughs> in the 550 horsepower era. Well... The fastest car in the first ever 550 race period, it just happened to be at Atlanta, 
was Martin Truex or belonged to Martin Truex. Uh, as you mentioned, did not win that race last year. Fastest car belonged to Martin Truex again, oh. did not win that race. The winners are fast enough, right? Harvick had the second fastest car. Truex was rewarded with finishes of uh, second and third in those races. So speed's going to net you a result. And there was pretty much a direct correlation between race long speed ranking and finishing position. It was a coefficient of plus 0.9, very high, indicative of a relationship. And you know, we talk about strategy with the upside, uh, the best case scenario uh, being some team with middling speed pulls a fast one on the field. And while yes, that happens every now and then, and we saw it happen a few times last year, the majority of the time, good strategy gets you a spot or two uh, beyond where you rank in speed. And that's it. And things drivers do really well, passing, restarting, that can help you earn extra spots. But they're not deviating wildly from that. If you execute to the best of your ability, you're probably scoring four or five positions better than your speed ranking. It doesn't seem like much, but it it is and also displays the importance of the car. This is the sport. It is automobile racing after all. So correlations like this make sense. Um, no, the fastest car hasn't been winning 550 tracks, but a slow car certainly isn't winning these races either. Uh, I mentioned Kevin Harvick because he was last year's winner in Atlanta. And David, let me read to you his finishes this season. Fourth, sixth, fifth, 20th, and sixth. And yet, despite what I just read to you, four, what is that? Four top six finishes already this season. He appears to be a little off. And of course, this is because of the insane standard that he himself, Kevin Harvick and Rodney Chelters have set throughout the, the last few years and as their time together. So despite him having four top six finishes and the 20th place in Las Vegas, he does seem to be a bit off because he is not a contender, right? I don't think he's. He hasn't felt like that contender in any of the races so far. 17 total laps led, and they all came in the Daytona 500. So since the Daytona 500, he has not led a lap. That, that's what I mean by certainly not seeming as a contender in any of these races. So what do you think we learn or what do we take away? Not that we're the hot take type of people, but if he struggles in Atlanta, what do you think that that means for Kevin Harvick? And struggle, of course, being relative. Hmm. So, I, I mean, I think your assessment's right. It, he's He's been good, not in the top tier. Is that fair? Yeah. You know, looking at his his speed rankings uh, on 550 tracks compared from last year to this year, Homestead and Las Vegas, those races last year saw him rank 18th and 9th in speed. And I'm using the Vegas fall race, given that that was on the tire compound that was used this year. This year at those tracks, median lap time rankings were 13th and 18th, respectively. Those places last year, not particularly great for SHR. This year, also not great for SHR. I'm not convinced that's where Harvick and Stuart Haas racing need to improve though. Uh, his performance at Phoenix last week was a relatively quiet effort on par with what we saw from him there last fall. He had the 10th fastest card Phoenix last fall and Atlanta this weekend will be probably the litmus test. He ranked second last year, lone race in Atlanta. Uh, and he ended up winning. He is productive on this racetrack, though I, I think there is a perceived mastery that is predominantly based on Xfinity Series success. In Cup, he's won three times in 30 starts. That's good, but probably more vulnerable to defeat than his reputation suggests. I do think this about him, though. If he is good this Sunday... I don't know if that means anything about SHR. I think 
I think he's at least that good to the point that he can just deliver an Atlanta result. Sort of like last week with, uh, with Phoenix, um, with Denny Hamlin. I pointed this out on the Motorsports Analytics Discord chat that Denny Hamlin performing well for Joe Gibbs Racing at Phoenix isn't a shock. And that doesn't really tell us anything about JGR. He's always good there, sort of regardless of rules package. Martin Truex performing well in Phoenix, that is a clear sign that JGR has stepped up the 750 program. And Atlanta for Harvick, if he's just okay or off for whatever the reason, then SHR probably lost some velocity on that fastball of theirs. Uh, his reputation in Atlanta, at the very least, I think exceeds that of Stuart Haas. So if he's on, I don't know that we really know anything. But if he's off, I wouldn't believe it to be his fault. Hmm, interesting. All right, we'll see what he does. So, David, given all that and what we've previewed so far, who are we picking to win in Atlanta and how? Uh, I'll go first on this one. And um I was leaning, I was really leaning into Martin Truex Jr. And I switched my pick. And then you just said he was been the fastest, I think, in the last two races. So I'm now kicking myself. So I'm taking you on a journey here. I apologize. But I am rolling with Kyle Larson. I think he will be the first repeat winner of the year. Uh, I like how he was able or how he's been able to adapt to his new equipment, David, for Team Hendrick. And what I mean, like, you know, I, I think back to Homestead. I don't know. He's always been the guy that runs the wall. Obviously, that's his reputation. Very skilled. He didn't need to do it as much in Homestead. I think it's because he had better cars, right? Better equipment. Uh, he led some laps in Homestead, finished fourth. So then I look back on his recent Atlanta runs. Remember, he did not race there last year, but he's got some top tens, a lot of laps led there in Atlanta. And by the way, if you look at motorsportsanalytics.net, the five team, the fastest average median speed so far this year, David. So yeah, I'm going with Kyle Larson. Hmm, that might be the longest race he's ever won if he wins it, which might mean something, might not. But yeah, I'd like to see how a, a long run version of Kyle Larson drives Atlanta without having to uh, run the high groove. That should be interesting. Um, Alan, I am going to pick Martin Truex. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> you know, this is the first pick that I'm making as a result of things that I've seen this year. Um, the speed is ubiquitous. I mean, across Homestead, he was in the game. Vegas ranked ninth, but was also there last week. The best speed during that closing stretch. Uh, thanks in part to that go ahead restart that was detailed on your YouTube channel this oh. week. Uh, I think he finally gets this Atlanta win. Um, those fast cars have come up empty in each of the last two years of this track. And I, if he keeps it up, eventually he's going to hit, uh, short runs especially those restarts, long runs. He's good enough on both. He is far and away the best driver at Atlanta to have never won Atlanta. And I think he closes the deal and he will be the first repeat winner of 2021. All right. We got a, we got a little bet going here. I like it. I like it. All right. So we always pick winners and then we always pick contrarian performers each week. I'll let you go first on this one. Who is your contrarian performer for Atlanta? Mr. Ricky Stenhouse Ooh. is my contrarian. He was one of 2020's best passers on this track type, but I'm going to stick to the speed theme here. Average best lap rank, a top end speed measure that is now posted on Motorsports Analytics, has him on par with Ryan Blaney and Kyle Busch, a half position off of Matt DiBenedetto, and just one position off of Kevin Harvick and Christopher Bell. And all of those are drivers for playoff teams. I hope Ricky Stenhouse does not cook his tires. I don't think he will. <laughs> uh, if he doesn't, the speed is there. And his panache in traffic, his affinity for forcing passes probably ruffles some feathers, but I like to see it. That should be something to watch come Sunday. David, my contrarian performer, this one was tough for me because other than his performance at Homestead, I can't really find anything to lean on, and I apologize. I'm going with Tyler Reddick. I don't know. Maybe it's just a going off feeling. 
his crew chief is killing it with pit decisions. I like that. Maybe gets gets him some positions. And um, maybe, you know, a lot of times I've picked Austin Dillon and the RCR guys at these mile and a half for my contrarian performers. So this week I'm going with Tyler Reddick. I, I wish I had a better, more in-depth answer. It, it was just tough. Uh, I was really trying to look for something to see if I could, you know, read some tea leaves and find a contrarian performer. Uh, I just haven't, David, and I apologize. What I'll go back to though is after the Phoenix race, you know, I think it was Jeff Gluck that was asking drivers, you know, where'd the parody go, right? All the players were, you know, rose to the top of this Phoenix race and they just said, uh, politely, a lot of them just said, look, it, it's talent, right? The talent rises to the top. And that's why I was having trouble finding a contrarian performer this week because I think we'll see a lot of the the main players up there. Yeah, but I think you you hit on something that you're not even aware of. Uh, yeah, the pit decisions are going to be huge. There very likely will be green flag pit cycles in a 500 mile race. This race is a slog, mm-hmm. and it, it, if it if it drones on green flag conditions. You're going to need somebody making correct calls like that. And Tyler Reddick with Randall Burnett is positioned to do that very well. Um, I like some of the folks that we've drafted uh, for our fantasy teams to do well for the same reason just because this is such a long race. Uh, it's the longest race that we've had this year since the Daytona 500. So could be interesting in that regard. That will matter a lot because, as we mentioned, with the impact of tire wear, Positions are going to change on those long green flag pit cycles. Hope all of our listeners keep an eye on that one. And David, we have more positive regression news. Post-Atlanta, a few weeks ago, we were able to hook up with Venue and do a post-race show. Well, we're going to push it one day and do a post-race lunch hour. Monday, 12 p.m. Eastern, we will join you on the Venue app. So join us on there for a little post-race discussion. Uh, there's a great chat, a lot of interaction on there. We will answer your questions about the race and, of course, offer some post-race analysis. Uh, this isn't something we're going to post, so the only way you will be able to hear it is if you download the Venue app and easy login and listen live with us. It was a really cool experience last time, David, and I think it'll be fun again, especially with a little more time to kind of percolate and for the listeners as well to come up with some questions that we can answer for them. Oh, yeah. I, I enjoyed the last one uh, a great deal. And I think this will be fun. If you're on your uh, your lunch hour, download the app. Just listen. And if you have questions, send them our way. I think it'll be fun to kind of chew on some things post-Atlanta, maybe going forward in the next couple of weeks. Uh, should be some great fun. So come join us. Yeah, good stuff. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, TuneIn, and now YouTube. We are available no matter your device or screen. Our entire catalog of back episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This does help in spreading the word. We always notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on this week? This week for NBCSports.com, I'm analyzing Kevin Harvick. I'm sure he'll be thrilled to hear that. Uh, diving into what we've seen from him and Stuart Haas racing in the early part of the season. And on Sunday, the big Atlanta race preview, that will hit first thing in the morning. So have it with your coffee or tea and prepare for the race day ahead. Also, I uh, will be uh, on Forbes.com uh, with a mini preview of the Sebring 12-hour sports car race. Uh, I dig the sporty cars. I hope you do too. Uh, if you if you don't, I can make some easy assimilation for you. I had a one-on-one interview with uh, Felipe Albuquerque, the driver who took the checkered flag of this year's Rolex 24. So find me on Twitter at David Smith MA. And uh, settle yourself for all of that. All right. Good stuff. As always, make sure you ask uh, Kevin Harvick about his age or talk about that. He loves that, David. So um, yeah, follow me along on Twitter at Alan Kavana. Always got some good stuff on there. I'll plug any of the work I have. But make sure you follow me on YouTube as well. As David mentioned, post-race Phoenix, I got a great breakdown of Martin Truex's uh, restarting prowess. So I made sure to put that up 
on YouTube and make sure you watch the NASCAR.com fantasy live show. Uh, I hope you're playing along. I finally had a good week in fantasy and I hope you did too. So we like to give you some uh, hits, misses, and maybe some uh, long shots on that show. So make sure you're watching fantasy live on NASCAR.com. And David, another deep plug for us late into this episode. Here's what I'm going to say. If you are still listening this late into the episode, I want you to do something. I want you to let me know on Twitter because everybody who responds and lets me know they are still listening to this from that group, I will pick a winner and I will send them a 164th scale Thunderbat from 1995. And we will choose the winner. We will choose the winner on Monday's venue episode. So there you go. That, for David this Smith. Is, this is very exciting. <laughs> I hope you're still listening. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Good luck and send me those tweets. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700.